and welcome to a special edition of the McGregor Podcast. I'm Mark Bricker, your host for this special Hot Topic podcast series. And recently on a Wednesday night, as part of our Journey Together ministry, we hosted a Hot Topic night with Pastor Russell Howard leading. And the topic, thinking biblically about religious liberty. And joining me now is Pastor Russell. Welcome, Pastor Russell. Thanks, Brother Mark. I am glad to be here. Now, before we get into our teaching portion of the podcast, I want to back up a little bit and let our listeners know a little bit of the history of how we came to choose this particular topic. And I had come to you uh, with actually a couple of options. One was the, the one that we were planning on doing last fall, like the week before Ian hit, or the week of Ian, I think. Right, yeah, it right. Just, it was it got uh, thrown out and so i said would you, would you like to do that topic again or and i threw out another one i said what about talking about uh our religious liberty mm-hmm. and all of a sudden uh within the next i don't know 30 or 40 minutes no maybe it wasn't that long you just started going off on talking about uh, this topic on religious liberty and i thought i think our answer's here and yeah you sparked something in that conversation and i had i had as we all have had occasion to do in the last couple of years i had done some you know, internal sorting of categories and thinking through some of that, trying to make sure I was clear within myself. And uh, yeah, that, that became something from which I could share with freedom. Yeah, so. and it, it is always, uh, I think, wonderful whenever we teach something, especially if it's related to a particular topic, mm-hmm. that there is somewhat of a passion or uh, a desire to communicate on that. Makes, so. the, makes the prep a little bit more passionate, a little more yeah. you know, driven. And I really think it came out in your, your teaching time so. that night as well. You divided your talk into three uh, sections, orientation, expectation, and obligations. And in today's podcast, part one, we'll hear that very first section, orientation. Now, why did you spend so much time on this first part? You know, when you, when you, when you kind of put up on the board the idea of religious liberty, there are so many different, um, not only just different angles, but so many different perceptions. What, what do you mean by that is a very fair question because right. you can address it historically, you can address it philosophically, you can address you know sort of from a political science viewpoint. Mm-hmm. Our, uh, our whole package is called thinking biblically tied to our purpose statement. And so to ground the idea into a, a biblical framework, you can't avoid some history. The orientation had some historical stuff yep. in it. Um, but to get us all kind of in the same... Uh, space. Hmm. I felt like that was a really important beginning point. Yeah. All right. Well, join me now as we listen together to part one of Thinking Biblically About Religious Liberty. There is an enormous and important security blanket in which I often wrap myself when, I, uh, when I'm in front of you with a podium and a Bible. One of the blessings of an approach that is generally guided by teaching verse by verse through books of the Bible is the freedom to say, thus saith the Lord. When I or another member of the teaching team have done a faithful exposition of a passage of Scripture and have stayed quite close to what that passage says, 
then any argument you have, if we do it right, any argument you have is an argument with the text. And at the end of Sunday morning, you get to go home to dinner and I get to go home to dinner. And if I've left you or one of our other teachers has left you with an argument with the text, well, you and the Holy Spirit of God get to go hash that out. And then come opportunities to speak topically. And there's quite a lot in the way this evening is constructed and in the conclusions that I've drawn that I I believe are sound and scriptural, but inevitably, alongside some thus saith the Lord tonight, there's quite a bit of here's what Russell thinks. And I just want to go ahead and say in advance If some of the here's what Russell thinks part is a bit different than what you think, you and I are going to be okay. Um, I don't mind challenging you to maybe take a prism and look at something from a different angle. Never have minded that much. But contrary to what some might have concluded, I'm not inordinately cantankerous. I said inordinately. I also, by the way, am not a historian, not a civil rights expert. I am a teacher of God's word, have been for a long time. And with that in mind, though I will make a couple of historical references inevitably, I took seriously the assignment when Pastor Mark and I discussed tonight thinking biblically about this issue of uh, religious liberty and how we should interact at least one aspect of how we should interact with it. So that being said, tonight I wanna, I'm, I'm going to break into three major sections. I'll give you a stand-up break along and along. But the first thing I want to I share is an orientation sort of an orientation to the idea of thinking, thinking about religious liberty. And, and in order to do that, I want to I lead with a small bit of history. The, uh, the constitutional enshrinement of the First Amendment and the mindset of, of freedom of religion and, and freedom of uh, speech as well that, that came to live in the Bill of Rights has at least one important stream of its origin with Baptists. The founder of the Rhode Island Colony was a man by the name of Roger Williams. And in Providence, Rhode Island, is the first Baptist church so-called in North America. In fact, the Southern Seminary in Louisville, our flagship Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, has a chapel that is modeled on the first Baptist church in North America, which was the first Baptist church of Providence, Rhode Island. Williams had been living in Massachusetts Bay Colony. Massachusetts Bay Colony was founded to get out from under the thumb of the religious tyranny of the Church of England by a group of separatist Puritans, pretty much evangelical Christians. 
Now, they were a little hardcore, but there's no question that the founders of Massachusetts Bay were confessionally devout Christians. The, the, the writings of, of, of the American Puritans are, are brilliant and challenging. We're talking the 1600s, so they're not exactly easy reading. But as the, as the Puritan leadership of the Massachusetts Bay Colony mixed up secular power with religious conviction, ironically, in a colony founded to get away from religious tyranny, they set up a religious tyranny of their own. And Williams left Massachusetts Bay in 1636 and founded the Rhode Island colony to get away from the tyranny of those who had founded a colony to get away from the tyranny of the Church of England and the Massachusetts Puritans, respectively. Now, that's, that's worth noting because it, 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 it should sort of set a switch in our head to realize that the exercise of earthly temporal power and faithful living for Jesus have tended to make weird partnerships where the earthly power pursuit has tended to eclipse the faithful and passionate pursuit of a growing authentic faith. Temporal power has not served Christ's kingdom all that well. Interestingly enough, the principal early historical figure for religious freedom in the United States was a devout Baptist trying to get out from under the tyranny of the devout Puritans who had gone a little power hungry. In light of that and other things, let me, let me offer this definition historically what I think freedom of religion is. This is my own, my own definition of, well, actually, religious liberty. Let's call it that to avoid constitutional terminology. Religious liberty is the freedom from the imposition of another transcendent framework. When somebody has their own transcendent framework, that is, on matters that are so big, they're bigger than day-to-day -day life. My transcendent framework. When I am free from the imposition of your transcendent framework upon the confession or practice of my own transcendent faith or lack of same. If you can take your overarching transcendent worldview and make me conform to it in either confession or practice, then my religious freedom is, is being impinged upon. Now that definition is original with me and it's a great big, here's what Russell thinks. It is not a thus saith the Lord. There have been volumes written on this issue by people way more studied than I am. 
But I tend to think in terms of words and definitions, and as I chiseled and hammered and scaffolded and spray painted, this, I believe, is a good working definition of what we mean when we talk about religious liberty. Now, there's a, there's a footnote to this definition, and this footnote has always been there. Um, we, before I go to where my footnote is, um, you and I tend to think of this, I hope we do, in light of our own confessional framework. We, we tend to see this in distinctly Christian terms, unavoidably. Our point of view is our point of view. But this has always had a sort of practical limitation. For example, suppose that you were committed to a transcendent faith in confession and practice that held that all motor vehicles were public property. And so according to your deeply held religious convictions, any car that you happen to lay eyes upon that you can get in, crank, and drive off with, well, you're deeply convict, con convicted that that's permissible. See the problem? We've always held, next slide, please, that we've always held that there's a subject, there's a limitation, that our, our religious liberty is limited by commonly held core beliefs regarding coherent social order. Now, you've got to scratch your head on that because that, by the way, is what the tension of our day right there. It's the commonly held core beliefs across, a, you can call it, uh, uh, some of you have been studying Truman's book. He calls it the cultural imaginary. Um, you call it, you can call it the cultural consensus. It does not exist because of legislation. It's the group think of the culture. It can certainly be reflected in legislation, but the commonly held core beliefs are the limit on religious freedom. And you say, well, that sounds, that, that, that sounds off. Well, let me give you a, I think, a spectacularly clear example. Utah. Utah. Utah was admitted to the Union in 1896. Prior to that, Utah had been refused admission as one of the United States. Now hang on to your hat. They were refused admission to the United States on religious grounds. In fact, treading carefully, a freedom of religion argument could be made that they should have been admitted to the Union earlier because 
according to devoutly held foundational belief, very prevalent in Utah, you tell me, what did they have to backpedal on as a condition for admission to the United States? Do you remember? Polygamy! Ding, ding, ding. In 1890... The LDS church, and I'm not saying this position is accurate. Of course I'm not. But if we look at religious liberty from a civics lens, they were required by the United States of America to set aside a behavior that Joseph Smith originally said is required for salvation. Right? There, I, have a, I have a Mormon expert in the room who's a dear friend. All right? So let's, let's understand what happened. The Utah Territory had to change its position on a religious matter or they weren't going to get to play along with the United States. And that was not two years ago or two presidents ago or in any of our lifetime. That was well more than a century ago. The issue the Mormons ran up against was, to borrow my earlier wording, there was a commonly held core belief in the 1890s that marriage ought to be monogamous. It's, I'm curious, just as a thought experience, experiment, if we could reset the 1890s to the cultural consensus of today, I suspect Utah would get in with polygamy intact and nobody would bat an eye. And a religious freedom argument would be made. The government can't tell us what we can and can't define as marriage in our religion. But, and it's a, this is a key concept, this, this commonly held core belief set has always limited religious freedom. That's important to know, especially when one considers getting the right legislation passed as the key to resolving issues of religious freedom. Because as I will show in another example, not long from now, that, that hasn't always gone well either. For you and I, as we consider our interactions with the culture and our religious liberties in the culture, there's a biblical baseline that we cannot ignore. Romans 13, verses 1 through 7 is our biblical baseline. I'm going to read these verses in their entirety. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. There's not one word in that sentence you don't understand. Why? For, the, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. 
For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. We'll come back and talk about this. Some of you are grabbing that blue card right now and you're going to break your pencil point off. Ease up. Let me, let me. Hang on. Hang on. Whoever, but these words are there. I'm not making this stuff up. Whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who's in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. Some of y'all going down I-75 wouldn't have to stand on your brake every time you see a state trooper if you were doing, you know, give or take the speed limit. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, oh, by the way, this, was, this, this paragraph is in a letter written to a church that was located where? Rome. Was the Roman government a paragon of virtue and godly governance? Whatever you do with the interpretation of this paragraph, remember that it is written to a church at the heart of the Roman Empire. This only applies if your government is good and godly. Well, Paul sure screwed up addressing this letter to the church at Rome, didn't he? Be very, very careful. Well, Brother Russell, are there exceptions? I told you to hang on, at least in my view. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes for the authorities or ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Our biblical baseline is submission to our government until conviction is violated. Until conviction is violated. Now, we have to be very, very careful with that one. Because whatever we do with a, a sort of conviction exception to Romans 13, 1 through 7, we must understand that this is not mere preference, even strongly held preference. And in order that it be a conviction a conviction must be grounded in God's word. If I haven't lost some of you yet, I'm about to. For myriad reasons, every sentence out of my mouth for the next three or four sentences is going to carve off about a dozen people in the room that are going to think I'm mad. I, um, I enjoy owning developing proficiency in and somewhat collecting firearms. I am an NRA life member, not just an NRA member. I am extraordinarily fond of my Second Amendment rights. Okay, if I haven't lost you yet, I'm about to. 
I would struggle to classify them as a conviction because the word of God says nothing about me and firearm ownership. So I would have a problem defying the civil magistrate were something to happen to the Second Amendment and calling that defiance convictional. Conviction is a high stinking bar. Using a safer example, you can't claim, if you like doing 105 miles an hour on I-75, you cannot claim that to be a conviction. It may be a preference. It may be a strongly held preference. It may be something your daddy and your granddaddy taught you. It may be something for which you are willing to pay the fines and go to jail. But be very, very careful poking exception holes in Romans 13's very simple sentences on the basis of a conviction so-called that doesn't root very directly into Scripture. Work hard to discern what is a biblical conviction and what is a preference. So now that I've managed to alienate everyone in the room who either is freaked out by guns or loves them quite a lot, I did it. I got everybody. Um, I, hope, I hope whether you like my example or not, I hope you can throw your arms around my point. If you have a hair trigger, if everything the government wishes to impose upon you violates your conviction and therefore excuses you from obedience, you're the, you're the very person Romans 13, 1 through 7 is trying to correct. A self-governing anarchist. Just be super deliberate and biblically astute in defining what is a conviction. And by the way, I've got tons of preferences, some of them passionately held. I bet you do too. And we come to our moment here in the spring of 2023. Remember we talked about commonly held core beliefs regarding coherent social order. That's where limitations on any sort of civil right have always come from. Again, religious liberty and the Mormons are a huge example from American history. You will always encounter friction when everybody in the culture knows a thing to be true. But you differ based on your own convictions. Our commonly held core beliefs regarding social order were in many ways, once formed and influenced 
by what I will, I will call at least, at least a biblically informed theism. The grand debate of whether or not this country was founded by explicit Christians is a subject for another night. It's a legitimate debate. But at the very least, many of the influential voices at our founding held to an, an either implicit or explicit, biblically informed worldview. For, thus, thus uh, monogamous marriage in the 1890s. More than almost, well, more than a century after our founding, you couldn't come in as a state if you didn't have your act together on monogamous marriage. However, in our day, and this is one of my big takeaways I want you to grasp tonight. This is, this is sub-legislative. Legislation functions up here. But this, this cultural consensus, these commonly held beliefs regarding coherent social order exist sub-legislatively. They're in the groundwater, not the buildings built on the lot. The, the brouhaha in Colorado a few years back about requiring a baker to bake a cake for an occasion in which that baker did not believe. Until after that event, there was no law on the books that person was breaking. After the event, there were some laws put in place. What that person ran afoul of, that baker, they did not run afoul of the law. They ran afoul of commonly held core beliefs regarding coherent social order. How, how dare you refuse to bake our cake because you don't believe in the event for which our cake is being baked? What is, what is, what kind of oddball nut are you? I, I just, I just declined to bake your cake. Oh. You and I are, are, are living in a time where this, this once commonly held set of beliefs regarding coherent social order that had roots in at least biblically informed theism. That either is changing or has completely changed to a Marxist Darwinian framework that is now more influential in our cultural setting than biblically informed theism is. What are we going to do? Hang on. But I think it is reasonable to expect it will get worse. It will get worse. So board up the churches, shut up about the gospel, forget faithful living. Nah. Pastor Russell, you did a great job near the end of this section on delineating the difference between preferences and convictions. 
Can you give our listeners a simple way to help all of us see the difference? Because so often our preferences, they sure can feel like convictions at times. Yeah, and, and uh, I'll tell you some of the things the differences aren't. The difference, uh, the difference doesn't root in mere degree. Um, I have some things that I very, very strongly prefer that, that the degree of preference is quite high, mm. but I can't call them convictions. Right. I, uh, I, I like Coke Zero way more than I like Diet Pepsi. Uh, shout out to our non-sponsors. <laughs> but I can't, I can't, there's no way I can call that a conviction. Yeah. So, so I have to, I have to, I can have, boy, but I feel so strongly about that. That does not make it a conviction. Mm. The shortest way to, to know is your convictions are rooted in, in uh, biblical understanding. And by biblical understanding, I mean there is a passage of Scripture that speaks to that issue. And, and when you are um, behaving differently than that, you are violating something that God has said in His Word. Right. That's the clearest framework for convictions. Now, you also can have places where scriptural principles have built some conclusion— as long as you've done the work, Mark, you get you can't just make up something. You've got to right. have done the work. We are disciples of Christ. We are students of God's word, and that means sometimes we have to be students. Right. And so, before you label something a conviction, I think it's a pretty high bar. Um, and remember, in context, what I'm talking about is when can I set aside the clear direction of that first paragraph of Romans 13 and say, I don't have to obey my government because my government is telling me to disobey God. Right. That can't be something that's just, I really wanted purple and you've told me green, right? And that's why I like to always use the word biblical in front of the word conviction, yeah. just to make sure it's super clear that Absolutely. this is not just a highly held preference. Let's just call it a biblical conviction. Yes, sir. That's it. All right. Well, uh, this was part one, and we thank you for listening to this special McGregor podcast, Thinking Biblically About Religious Liberty. Don't forget to listen to part two of this Hot Topic series on religious liberty coming soon. <laughs>